What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Before we start the podcast, a brief note. We recorded this week's episodes before sexual harassment allegations against Dustin Hoffman came to light. We're dismayed to hear these allegations and believe the woman who has come forward, but they don't alter our assessment of either film under discussion this week. With that, on with the show. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Tasha Robinson. Genevieve Kosky. Scott Tobias. On the first half of this episode, we discussed the enduring 60s classic, The Graduate, starring Dustin Hoffman. Now we're going to bring in the Meyerowitz stories, new and selected. Hoffman's latest, in a film with some strong connections to his star-making role. The Meyerowitz stories, which premiered on it, can currently be seen on Netflix, is a new film from writer-director Noah Baumbach. Like previous efforts from the director, it's populated by hyperliterate, emotionally stunning characters who find themselves haunted by the past as they consider what lies ahead. Hoffman plays Harold Meyerowitz, a sculptor and college professor who won some attention and acclaim for his work, but never became a star. Now retired from teaching, he has more time to take his disappointment out on his children, Danny, Matthew, and Jean. In the film's opening segment, Danny, a stay-at-home dad played by Adam Sandler, comes to stay with Harold and his alcoholic fourth wife, Maureen, played by Emma Thompson, after Danny's marriage falls apart and he sends his daughter, Eliza, off to college. While hanging out with his father, Danny attempts to come to terms with how Harold's needs and insecurities dominate his life, both when Harold was in the picture and after he stopped paying attention to Danny and his sister, Jean, played by Elizabeth Marvel, after leaving their mother. Then the film's focus shifts to Matthew, played by Ben Stiller, a successful business advisor who's clearly his father's favorite. But, we soon learn, that comes with a different sort of burden— a fact made even clearer when Harold's health brings the whole family together late in the film. We'll be back to discuss the film and how its depictions of generations trying to escape one another compare to The Graduate after the break. The dad says you're going to study film at college. Yeah. Seems to be what everybody is doing these days. I think the dad hoped that you might follow in his footsteps and take sculpture. Well, I think it's good that she's doing her own thing. Since uh, Clarence had a stroke and I retired, the art department of artists really suffered. She's quite a good editor. So, now we have a sculptor and a filmmaker in the family. And a musician. And an accountant, which sounds uninteresting, but Matthew's, in fact, the only one in the family who's figured out how to make money. Sign of the times. We're supposed to say business manager. I would have thought we would have had more artists in the family. What about Dad? I'm artistic. Matthew showed interest in fine art, and Danny had musical talent, but Matthew was also talented musically and a wonderful mimic. Gene, you showed interest in photography. I'm Montessori, yeah. In my office at Xerox, I'm known as the resident auteur. I make funny movies. 
for my coworkers' birthdays. It really good. We have no idea what Jean does at Xerox. I'm a facilities manager for when special. When was the last job you had, Daddy? Those piano lessons. Except for the piano lessons. And there's that gig at Music Charlie's. I haven't worked in a since Eliza was born. Danny was a house husband. But now at the separation, he's going to have to get a job. You can't take alimony. It's not right. So what do everyone think of the Meyerowitz stories? Tasha? <laughs> See, this is, this is yeah, one we of probably, us. We probably shouldn't start with No, you. no, you should start with me because uh, I can wave my little downer flag and then you can cheer things back up. I really didn't like it. I just, I feel like I've You're seen... not on board with Bombac, right, in general? You know, I loved The Squid and the Whale. Mm. I mean, like, loved it with a burning, passionate mm. love. The f- particular flavor of that film's humor, the insecurity that the Jesse Eisenberg character brings out, combined with, like, the level of humor of everything around him, and then just something about the ending, which it ends on such a graduate note of, uh, you know, uncertainty and yet understanding. That film just really hit home for me, and none of his other films since have really connected with me in the same way. It played for me like such a retread of The Royal Tenenbaums, which is a movie we considered pairing it with, and like so many Woody Allen films. I'm just I'm, – I'm really tired of the neurotic, intellectual, talky, Jewish extended family living in New York where New York is a character and it's an ensemble film with a lot of really famous people and it's beautifully shot, but everybody's insecure and dumps their insecurities all over each other and then nobody really goes anywhere. Like the, all of this put together should not be – a cliche, but it is. I just, I feel like I've seen this movie so many times before. Now, Keith has his mouth all the way over on one side of his face, and <laughs> Scott is kind of doing this like head bob thing he does where he's like, he's waiting for me to stop talking. No, I know I'm that I'm, I'm, I'm alone here. Tell me why you guys well, like, like this movie so much. I'll, I'll go first because I, I went into this movie with some doubts uh, that mirror some of your concerns about the movie. I and very kind of touch and go on on Baumbach. Um, I, I love his films with Greta Gerwig, and that's about it. Um, and it's Squid in the Whale, I guess. And I also do kind of share your fatigue with a certain type of story that this uh, falls into the category of. But there's so, so much specificity to the Meyerowitz stories in both the characterization and the writing, and there's so much just really distinctive and smart and layered humor that comes out of the writing in it that I just, I admire this movie incredibly on both a, a writing and stylistic level, less so the latter, but I think it's writing is just absolutely pristine and the performances. I'm not a Sandler or Stiller person and Stiller I thought was very much in the familiar mode that I don't really care for, but he still rose above it. Sandler I think was a revelation in this movie. I thought he was wonderful beginning end yeah i yeah. thought so too i mean it, it, i love this movie i think it's one of Bombach's best films and it feels to me like kind of a closest to squid in the whale which is why i kind of winced when you said that was the one you really loved and this one you didn't like because they feel like the same very very personal uh movie about broken families and how they come together and they don't and it's it, it, you know you, you mentioned the royal tenenbaums the thing i like about this it's like the royal tenenbaums with none of the neatness you know it's like it's all shards it's all broken up stories there's it has none of the balance of royal tenenbaums none of the neatness i mean there are literally lines that just end in, with a cut mid-sentence yeah uh and i think that's such, it's such a deliberate choice on his part i, I mean i liked it from start to finish but when it what absolutely crushed me and it, and it crushed me again when i uh, rewatched it today is uh the scene very early on when adam sandler is playing the piano duet with his daughter eliza genius girl genius girl and the song i mean it's such a it's such a cute song and 
you know, and the line is mommy and daddy and genius girl make three. And you realize, of course, that they don't, they're not a family anymore. And it's just like, what a crushing thing. I mean, what, how does that feel to, to sing that and be at that point in their lives? And I, I just, I, I thought that was so beautiful. And it was such a specific utilization of Sandler and his talents. I think Baumbach and then Paul Thomas Anderson with Punch Drug Glove have really found whatever narrow <laughs> thing that Sandler does, whatever his essence is. They've found it and they've brought it out as well as they possibly can. So I really love this movie. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, I mentioned before how I probably saw too much of myself in, in Benjamin Braddock. And, and there's really no film scene I've related to as strongly as Adam Sandler trying to park a car. And I related so much of his daughter in that moment because <laughs> he is my boyfriend trying to park and I am the one that's saying, like, screaming isn't doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> turn it down. No, turning up the song is too good. Um, but no, this is this is way up there on my list of, of Bombac movies and, and maybe my favorite since The Squid and the Whale, certainly since Francis High. And mm-hmm. I've, I've liked them all, some more than others. But it, it, he's really interesting where, where I fell in love with his first movie, Kicking and Screaming, which was... Uh, this college set, you know, maybe maybe been a good parent to graduate if times were a little different, but mm. it's, it's these kids that graduated college but are still hanging around that don't know where to go. And every line in that is so quotable. And it's got emotional depth to it, too. But he kind of went away for a little bit. And when he came back with the squid and the whale, he's like a director who'd found like several new gears of, of uh, you know, emotional complexity and just you know, able to set a mood. And to me, this film is like marrying everything he learned there and subsequent films with that, like just the wit and the nonstop dialogue of, of kicking and screaming. There's just, I'm looking at your, your notes over your, over, over your shoulders. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all, it's all yeah. quotable lines. Yeah. We're talking about the gourmet hummus and <laughs> why was it upstairs? You know? Um, but yeah, no, I, I think it's, it's a, a, a terrific film and it really gets you. I, I, there's moments in this movie that are really affecting, but it's, funny like he made a few nominal comedies like Margot at the wedding and greenberg these are movies <laughs> that you know the darkness just overwhelms the funny moments in it um and this i think the balance is just really fine-tuned i mean i like him when he's a jerk i mean like he, he sure. makes movies about jerks and he and i like the jerkiness of his films uh greenberg is is just peak jerk <laughs> for sure for him i mean and I, I know that film turns off many people i mean if greta gerwig is not in that movie i don't know what people would think of it but i do think there's a deafness here and kind of a I wouldn't say a, a lightness necessarily, but I laughed quite a bit. As, like I said, I've got plenty of quotable lines on here. And, and I also like the, the way the lines are not overemphasized. I mean, the one thing about, you talk about Woody Allen and her sister. The only thing about Woody Allen films is they're very ingratiating and they want to be liked a lot. They really want the audience to like them. I mean, maybe if you get into like Husbands and Wives, Deconstructing Harry, etc., maybe not so much. But that is not Baumbach's interest. He's like the least ingratiating director around. He's very, very prickly. And he's fine with the characters not being noble in any way. I just think there's something, there's a dignity to that. And I think with a, a lot of Alan and, and Alan influenced films, I think they're kind of flattering the audience with references and sort of, you know, highbrow references and sort of very literate dialogue. And here I think it's just, it's just how these characters talk. It felt very natural to their world. Yeah. That's kind of what I mean about the the specificity of it. And like, you know, it's, it's always so tempting to be like the, the universal themes and blah, blah, blah. And like, I mean, there is definitely stuff in this movie that I think is universally appealing or resonant resonant but this family is so specific in terms of their history and their culture like the family culture and there's that stuff with eliza's art films Uh and it's just like it's so weird and uncomfortable watching these like highly sexualized films but like 
they're art people. And there's that line later spoken by someone outside the family when Adam Sandler's character is like inviting her to the film festival and talking about his daughter's films and being like, it's not unpornographic. <laughs> and she goes, I'm in the art world. I've seen it all. And it just like it encapsulates this slightly skewed worldview that this family that's just like in this family's DNA. Yeah, I mean, it's a really uncomfortable moment for them to sit around a computer monitor and all watch it together. But the reaction is not like, this is disgusting. They're, You've got to pull her out of school right now. They're processing it as art because they yeah. process everything as art because that's what they were raised to do. And yep. Jean Jean nails the one-liner too. She's caught. This is a hard <laughs> R. <laughs> that really does help me uh, like process the reaction to that. I, I thought that the reaction to, especially like her first video where for the first time you realize that she's making films where she's naked mm-hmm. and that her dad is watching them. You like, mean Pagina Man? <laughs> it's Pagina Man about <laughs> the, the superhero with both a penis and a vagina. Yeah, that, that helps me process that a little because it was, uh, for me, that was just it was so off-putting. The, more the, the response to it, but that is a, a really good read of it. Between this and Raw is the year of women peeing in unusual ways on film. <laughs> kind of, Look for that in the year-end wrap-up pieces. One more to trend. One more to trend. Yeah. 47 movies where I people the emoji pee movie in weird ways. Number 37 it. will astonish you. I loathe adam sandler i loathe him in general i mostly loathe him here you know he he rises up from like a negative 20 on the tolerable scale up to about a two but i still find him pretty intolerable that's a pretty big jump i I feel like (laughs) it is it is it's a huge jump but it still ends him up as a two and if you're not into like what he does in in the broad comedies i think what he does here is so different it's so subtle and like there's i mean i'm really tired of the oh adam sandler's can't act after all because we knew that already we saw we saw punch truck love i think he's really good in spanglish which mm-hmm. is a movie that gets kind of a bad rep that doesn't deserve the cobbler to some degree the cobbler, yeah. The cobbler. <laughs> yeah, yeah so optimistic i'm gonna get around to the cobbler one of these days. Yeah. <laughs> to some degree watching somebody who has made a career off of laziness and the ability to never underestimate the the low intellectual desire of the American people for thoughtful entertainment, like watching him do something sophisticated and thoughtful, uh, just makes me madder at him. <laughs> it's just like that it, sounds like a you problem, not a Sandler oh, problem. I will I will straight up admit that uh, probably a lot of my problems with this film are me problems. I think one of them, and I, I have this problem. I was sort of thinking through this as we were discussing the Graduate. I think one of the reasons I find it very hard to uh, empathize with Ben past a certain point is because he he hurts Elaine and he doesn't hurt her through negligence or through obliviousness or through pursuing something that he wants that's not in tune with what she wants he sets out to hurt her and he does it and then when he decides that he wants her anyway he just kind of shrugs it off and learns nothing from it and bowls forward this movie is fundamentally about somebody who hurts everybody around him and really by the end of the film learns nothing I think that Squid and the Whale, what it does that works so well for me is it is a fundamentally a movie about somebody who hurts everybody around him, doesn't see it, doesn't care, but a character learns by the end that that's what's going on and has to figure out what to do with his life. But I think that's what the kids do in this movie. Exactly. So this is the same thing, but writ larger and more complicated with a lot more loose ends. It's a lot messier. It feels less personal to me. It's sloppier. There's a lot more comedy to it. And in the end, you still kind of come down to that same place of, well, you're just trying to figure out how to deal with the fact that you've you've wrapped your life around a jerk. Less personal. I, I think that this, this film is just so jammed with details that are that can only be from real life. I mean, I was thinking of like a tiny reference like, this might protest like McEnroe. 
Like, <laughs> here's the thing. I followed tennis closely. I, I read McEnroe's biography or autobiography. I have no, I don't know what he's talking about there. I thought its observations about hospitals and the medical industry seemed very much informed by time spent in a hospital, like watching someone very sick or, or, or dying. Like, there's so much about like nurses and doctors don't know each other and mm-hmm. the EKG has to be read in India and the doctor is going on a three-week vacation you know the tomorrow and won't be around and speaking of like bringing personal stuff to this like a lot of it reminded me of my grandma having a, a stroke and going through a lot of the same stuff that Harold went through and just dealing with a lot of those headaches of being in the hospital like that all felt like you said like very personal and detailed and again specific while also making a sort of larger point about capital letters the way we live now yeah you know? yeah oh, and, oh, i was and, gonna say legal eagle is on vhs but you, you make a much a much more or, poignant point or the B- 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 hills cop <laughs> yeah that's the, i had those, those those videotapes with three movies on them taped at slp tube yeah, but, yeah not, not to bring everyone down but as someone who uh lost a dad ultimately to a subdural hematoma uh, uh they, they they get a lot of details right now you kind of latch on to the good hospital employees yeah. and mm-hmm. the ones you can trust and there's just so much chaos and Pam. you get into different stories and yeah yeah you, you find your pams and you're like you hold on to your life and if they disappear get traded off a shift or the doctor goes to disappears or goes to india like you're kind of at, at loose ends so and, and that sense that ultimately your relationship with that person is not as as personal and important as that person's relationship with you right yeah i exactly. mean that's certainly yeah. like i lost my dad two years ago and we went through something very much like this yes a lot of it is is recognizable. But the fact that three of us in this room have had all of these experiences is kind of working against your claim that they're such personal details that they had to come from real life or had to specifically come from Noah Baumbach's life. I don't sure that even matters necessarily. It feels real. And it, it, it feels, it feels it, like it came from a human being, not, <laughs> not a screenwriting factor. As opposed to most movie scripts, I mean, I mean, which don't feel like they came from a I human mean, being. No, a lot of movie scripts feel like they were written by committee. You know, mm-hmm. like, like it, it, it feels like there is someone's personal experience experience at play here even if it's a personal experience that is not unique yeah, i think we'll see this hopefully in a couple of weeks when we talk about ladybird 2 it's just like i just like movies that are just this like repository of very specific things and in, in uh that, that movie in this one 20th really... century women is another good example of that too. yeah maybe i like better than you do scott yeah. But, but yeah that's that's yeah exactly that's right that's all it's such a memory movie and, and, and so informed by the filmmaker and the filmmaker's experiences. And it's just, it's obvious, you know, you can tell from the moment it starts. Can we just before we move on, this is just such a, a weird little detail and it doesn't necessarily rhyme with things and graduates. So I don't know if we're going to get back to it. The editing thing that you mentioned where it, it, things are cut off mid-sentence. Mm-hmm. So we do that at the beginning of the film and then we stop doing it at the end of the film. And instead we kind of cut to black and have a, a moment of thought. Like at the end of scenes, like that that sharp cut off in mid sentence thing just completely stops happening, and to my mind, that is because the first half of the film is about how nothing ever reaches completion, how you you're never going to get satisfaction out of this guy in your relationship with him, you're never going to get satisfaction out of anything in your life because you you don't know what you want in your cycling, and by the end of the movie. People are starting to figure out what they want. They're starting to express themselves emotionally. And scenes have a tendency to end in a, like, by actually fully playing out and then giving you a pause for consideration. 
And that is a very conscious device that is done so blatantly that the audience can't miss it. I'm not sure I love the blatancy of it, but I, I like the thought throughness of it. I also have a different reading on why it shifts in the film, because the first two chapters are about Danny and Matt, who very much are reflecting their father's style of communication, which is interrupting and barreling over each other. And they echo Dustin Hoffman's performances in so many interesting and subtle ways throughout this film. And I think the interruption and cutting people off is one of that. And I think like their chapters end with that device as a sort of extension of that. The later chapters are focused on Gene and Eliza, and they pointedly express themselves very differently. And I do want to talk about Gene's chapter specifically before we move on, because I think it is probably my favorite part of the film. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah that's great. So that, that, that is how I read that stylistic choice as sort of like being reflective of the character's communication style. Yeah, definitely want to talk about Jean's chapter. Elizabeth Marvel is not someone I, I know. I've seen her and stuff, but you know she was great in this movie. But but I mean, I want to briefly talk. You know, Adam Sandler is getting a lot of great press for this and, and deserve at least so. But I think Stiller is great in this movie, and, and he's playing the Ben Stiller character we've seen before. But like his section, I was rewatching it before this today, where he declares to Adam Driver's character that it's not that bad seeing his dad. He's kind of above it all now. It's it's cool, and you watch him all that cool that get edged away over the course of the uh. afternoon with his dad and he's like right back into being drawn into his dad's grievances as, as he says and, and all the old buttons that his dad used to push are getting pushed again and it's like, i think we've all kind of been there with parents we're, we're, we're you know away from them and we kind of forget about some problems we have and then when you're back in that situation it all you're, you're 16 again and, and <laughs> watching him do that i think is, is a really it's a really fine example of what stiller does really oh, well. i hated that setup so much though like he's there with a client who we know is uh, an irresponsible spendthrift who like is not capable of managing his own business and he's he's telling him all he has these a coffee thing going on deeply yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's making money any way he can man it is just so out of character for like everything that we know about him or could assume about him from his his super success in the financial advisor industry that he would confess to this guy that he barely knows like everything about his relationship with his father and as soon as he says it all you know it's a lie and you know it's going to come apart i like the character movement i like the the setup i like the fact that he's he's telling himself this story and the story is wrong but the, i thought the execution of it was so clumsy can i point out a, a, a detail a super small detail that i noticed because i also rewatched it right before this that just changes matt's whole chapter for me is at the end during the group show at, at, at bard when matt shows danny the pills that he has left over from adam, <laughs> from adam driver's character and danny says oh there's a crumb missing and matt says that's from last time i saw dad and he had a little bit like so that is the scene that is the scene from earlier from ben's chapter so he had had a tiny little bit of either an upper or a downer we don't know which <laughs> in that scene so now i'm like thinking through that whole interaction with his father through the lens of whatever altered state he was working through at the time it's funny. We, I, I remember seeing him, like he, he takes it out and takes a little bite of it, but I don't remember where it comes in that sequence. Oh, I, t I totally missed him taking the bite of it. And it's, oh, I, I only yeah, caught yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. I, I think you'd have to figure out like, cause I, I want to think that it happens after all of that and it's him trying to deal with it. Mm -hmm. But at exactly what point he takes a little bite of it would kind of tell you whether he's working through it during that scene. Stiller and Sandler bring a lot of past perceptions of them into this movie. And I think both characters kind of 
either play into or play against the the the, the performances we're used to getting from them. Uh, Elizabeth Marvel, you know, like I said, I've seen her before, I'm sure, but never so prominently, and and she kind of comes with no preconceptions whatsoever, and, and she's remarkable in, in this movie. We should talk about her um, her section. Yeah, I I absolutely love that section. I was I tensed up as soon as I saw where it was going. As soon as I realized that oh, this is going to be a story of a sexual trauma as a child, and we're going to listen to a monologue about it, and it's going to be oh, and like she delivers the hell out of that monologue, which is like just the perfect amount of self protection and performative blaseness, but also like real hurt. And there's like one beautiful line where she talks about swimming in the ocean and how it was so meaningful to her and like that was great but then like the payoff of matt and danny wanting to take revenge in this like Mm -hmm. stupid way of beating up an old man's car and then her telling them off and being like this was not your place to defend me and what did any of that mean what was like that was all to make you feel better and i think that was just like such a smart thing to say about being an ally and supporting women and like what it actually means to, you know, support someone who has been through trauma. It's not about making yourself feel better. You know, she says, I'm still effed up. You know, I'm, I'm always going to be effed up no matter how many cars you beat up, you know, that's like the line of the year. I'm glad you guys feel better. I'm still effed up. (laughs) Yeah. I thought you'd be happy. Why would I be happy about this? You smashed a sick old man's car. His dementia? Yeah. Let's get you a bandage. I don't want a bandage. I want to let it bleed. Let's go to bars. He has dementia. Well, he didn't have dementia when he molested Gene. He didn't molest me. But let's not minimize it, Gene. What he did was and damaging. And I don't know, the same ass is in there somewhere, right? Beneath the dementia. I'm glad you guys feel better. Unfortunately, I'm still up. Do you want to take a swing? I could smash every car in this parking lot and burn the hospital down and it wouldn't unf*** me up. You guys will never understand what it's like to be me in this family. Let's go to Bard. I really liked that sequence, but I liked it so much more for the payoff than the setup. Right. I, I, I think if, if it had had any other payoff, it would have been very frustrating and infuriating. And her... The the calmness of her righteous indignation mm-hmm. as she tells them why making a choice on her behalf without consulting her is maybe not the right way to avenge somebody yeah. <laughs> making a choice on her behalf without consulting her. Mm-hmm. It's That's a pretty beautiful piece of writing. Yeah, There's a bit of dialogue after she tells her story where they're just like, why are you <laughs> hanging around, yeah. you know, and she's sort of, she's like, you know, because she's a decent person and, yeah. uh, and even though her father never took care of them that it's what you do and that she likes hanging out with those those guys i mean there's something just so, so poignant about that and, the, and it, it's returned by neglect i mean nobody knows what she does at xerox for example yeah there's also the she moment. puts on a little jeopardy game that they, that they really like yeah. there's also the moment where they awkwardly go to hug her after she's told her story and she just she walks away from them i'm going for a smoke yeah and it's just very much a i'm going to seek comfort in the thing that comforts me not the thing that necessarily you think should comfort not the comfort me. you are imposing upon me yeah it's a it's a nice little piece of business i wish she had more to do in the rest of the film although she from that moment on she just kind of grows the the revelation that she's been hanging around with the daughter and making films with her is kind of fun yes yeah she's made made, i'm in five of them yeah (laughs) (laughs) another little just stylistic note is the title card for her section which is called gene stories in parentheses Mm -hmm. it's the only one that's in parentheses and it just kind of underlines the 
afterthought nature of her character until suddenly it is not an afterthought or you realize like what is actually happening in that character that you've been ignoring yeah i think it's it's brilliant like where it's placed in the film and how it's set up so one performance we haven't talked about is Dustin Hoffman's. We've kind of been saving a little bit uh, for the next segment where we talk about the connections between The Graduate and the Meyerowitz stories after the break. You were also very musical, like Danny. But Danny could really play. No, that's true. He was quite gifted. I don't know why he didn't pursue it. I know he raised a child, but in this day and age, it's possible to do both. There's so many other things that factor in, don't you think? I thought you'd do something artistic. I work with artists. I understand the temperament. Maybe Eliza will be my heir in that department, although she seems more commercially minded and potentially a lesbian. Really? I didn't get that. <clears throat> you know, I think I mentioned to you I left the company I was with, and me and a couple of other people started our own firm. It was scary and a big change, but things have settled and we're doing really well. Maureen is talking to a friend a lot of who works at the Times about getting someone to come up and review the show. I think we're, in recent years, I've essentially been ignored by the I think we're a great alternative to some of the and bigger firms. I think firms. this might put me back on the map. This is our logo. $55 for a steak. They're known for their meat here. And $35 for a salmon. You get the salmon to blow you for that price? Now it's time for Connections, where we bring these two films together and talk about the things they have in common. Um, most obviously is... is Dustin Hoffman, and it's kind of interesting to watch these films in close proximity. Hoffman's great in both, but uh, he's, it's a very different performance. There's so much more dialogue in this one, for starters, and also there's sort of this history we have with him in the, in the years since The Graduate that, that we bring to the film that we don't necessarily bring to him in The Graduate. What did everyone else think of his, his work in this film and how it compared to The Graduate? I mean, I think they are very interesting echoes of each other in the characterization because there is like a baseline neuroticism to both of these characters. But in The Graduate, it's informed by so much awkwardness and discomfort in who you are as a person and second guessing yourself. And in Meyerowitz, it's just in don't give an F mode. It's that it's that like weird confidence that comes with age of not caring what the world thinks of your neuroses and your your grievances Mm -hmm. and that is maybe hoffman aging but i think it is also very distinctive to the ages both of those characters are he's on an age Meyerowitz, where he he gets to disappoint his children rather than (laughs) rather than being disappointed by his parents but i think there's a degree to which he does care what what people think and and he he is hugely bruised by the fact that his legacy as an artist is going to be is dust of the wind basically like he's not he's not lj his friend who has a retrospective at moma he's sharing a retrospective at his alma mater and his he's a nameplate on a box in the whitney right exactly (laughs) exactly and he's just he this is his legacy his legacy as an artist is oblivion and his legacy as a father is a mess. Yeah. Um, that's something I don't know how how conscious he is of that, or how much that sinks in, but it's there a little bit, uh, and it kind of adds a poignancy to a character who is, you know, like all Bombach characters, a very prickly pair. I think it's interesting how, like as you say, there are there are kind of rhymes because it's it's the same man bringing some of the same uh, actorly ticks and, and tactics to this role, but in so many ways they're they're direct opposites mm-hmm. because you know this older character knows what he wants and is so confident about what he wants and what his future looks like. Now, granted, it's not a future he can necessarily get to, Mm -hmm. but he knows what it should look like and what, how everybody should be 
reacting to him. I mean, I think it's a fascinating performance and it's very necessary to the film. I, I don't always love Latter-day Hoffman because he's just he's so nervy and babbly and mannered uh, that when he walks into a film where that particular piece of machinery doesn't fit. One of the ones that comes to mind for me is uh, Perfume, the Story of a Murderer which is a very distinctive film that I love and that he like stuck in the middle of it. He's like Robin Williams in the middle of uh, a serious drama. He just, he really doesn't, you know, I say that I'm not counting the films where Robin Williams plays a serious dramatic role in a serious drama where I thought he was great. Uh, but like, Basically, him doing like his his role in uh, Terry Gilliam movies uh, in a completely different film. He's just he's so mannered. He's so specific. In this one, though, no, I, I no. Just... I'm saying there are films where okay. what he does doesn't work. Here, it's built around him. The particular kind of machinery that he's playing, the whole film is built to fit around that machinery. And when a film can be built around an actor in that way, it's it's really important. It's really key. I felt this performance a lot more than I have a lot of Hoffman performances of late for the reasons that you mentioned and uh and i guess the one very strong contrast between his character here and ben and the graduate is how hyperverbal he is here mm. and how in that another really interesting thing about the, the dialogue in this film is how ideas just crash into each other sometimes in the same sentence you know he's looking at a picture of his grandson who he doesn't even recognize he thinks is blonde when he's when, but then he says he looks like the kid from the shining <laughs> <laughs> he says he looks like the kid from the shining and does he like the knicks you know and it's all sort of like and he has the Meyerowitz eyes so it's, so it's all these thoughts that, that run together and um and that's one of the things I really like about the film too is just there's so many laugh lines of the film but they don't announce themselves as laugh lines a lot of the time they're just like buried in the dialogue and you just kind of discover them and like, oh, that's pretty hilarious. And, th and that's something that didn't hit you over the head at all. To me, the, the big connection between these movies beyond Hoffman, I think Hoffman kind of underscores um, a thematic connection, is they're both ultimately movies about how one generation thinks it can get further away from its parents' generations than it really can. Um, I mean, Benjamin Braddock breaks away. But we don't know what happens next. And I'm not optimistic about him completely escaping the world that he wants to get away from. And this one, we have kids who have whatever their artistic talents have moved away from art because it, their dad just kind of eats up all of that. But he still like dominates their life. I mean, we talked about a little bit before we can talk about a little bit more about how Stiller and Sandler's characters both have mannerisms and they both kind of pick up in this worldview where he is a guy who never got a, you know, Hoffman's character is a guy who never got a break, never got his due. The work is good. Like, that's, that's a line that's, that, that everyone repeats, like the work is good. And we never really get a sense that we get a sense that it is good, but it's not great. You know, he maybe ha has has been justly appraised by history, but but the larger point is that these are people that are still very much drawn into his orbit, even if they think they're not anymore. Yeah, and I think that that is kind of a contrast with the intergenerational relationship in The Graduate, where it seems very much like Ben is pulling away from his parents at, at every scene, or they are pushing him away you know like there's a opposite poles effect uh there and that the kind of results in this isolation which we get so many beautiful images of in that film whereas in Meyerowitz Harold is just like kind of a black hole his family and his kids can't help but be drawn into his toxicity you know and they can't help but express the scars of their their life spent with him and there's there's just a lot more 
interaction and the family dynamic than there is in the graduate, which just seems so much more based in isolation. I think that it's interesting that in Meyerowitz stories, at least Danny and Matthew can't get over their their desire for his approval and attention. Mm-hmm. Jean seems like she walked away from that long ago and she was fine. But, but she still shows up. But she still shows do. up. Well, she's, she's a decent person. Yeah. <laughs> but there's that just that, that feeling of, of hungry need that goes on. And part of this movie is about learning to escape it. Ben, ben does not seem to have that problem at all. Yeah. But one thing that I think is really interesting about the two of them in comparison that does uh, work together rather than, than directly kind of confronting each other is that in both of these movies – kids do pull away from their parents' example, and it doesn't really necessarily work out any better for them. Um, You know, Danny has a very close personal relationship with Eliza, and we see how that can go wrong. And and I don't think that there's a statement there that being close to your kids is bad, or that being close to your kids is worse than being distanced from your kids, any more than I think been on the lane running off together and clearly not being happy is saying that there's something wrong with choosing your relationships instead of having your parents choose them. I think that both films just say your parents did things a certain way you're gonna rebel you're gonna run into your own problems or or some of the same old problems too like matthew moves to the west coast to get as far away from his father as possible pursues finance and he's treating his his family exactly the same way his father did yeah there's that amazing quote from matthew where he's contemplating quote sitting this kid out and letting (laughs) letting him find me when he's 21 (laughs) which is like such a darkly humorous way to put that but yeah i mean is essentially echoing what harold did with his other two kids one thing uh, tasha mentioned this and i i wanted to follow up on it is that one of the things i found touching about this film because you know you think about like characters they rebel as kids they come back and they're this, they're, they're their parents and i think that danny has really tried and succeeded in breaking from his father in his relationship with his daughter there's there's a there's a real commitment there and a tenderness you know what i mean that that, that father-daughter relationship feels healthy to me. Well, until he grabs the beer out of his hand, out of her hand and throws it well, because okay. he's, 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 she's <laughs> defying him. That's true. That's true. But I mean, she's going to rebel. But I, I don't. But I, I don't think that was like a relationship-ending incident. Oh no, you know, no. I think, of course, I think not. film is optimistic about her, about her chances of, of you know maybe the next generation can get away from from the worst possible habits of the. Oh, Marvel I don't instance. know. I mean, I like no? her art. Seems she seems confident about it, but her art seems kind of terrible. Well, and she's she, a freshman. No, she's figuring it out. Yeah, she just, it's it's she way just found, better than any freshman. Art she just found Cindy Sherman. She's gonna she's gonna need to work through her Cindy Sherman phase, and <laughs> uh, she'll figure out something else. I don't know. Danny I, told her about Cindy Sherman years ago. <laughs> I, I love his insistence that like you will you will understand and appreciate my references. I've got good and recommendations. I've got a good recommendation. <laughs> I can see her like sixty years from now just being the newest version of Howard, like having yeah. neglected well, her her family in order to produce naked videos. Well, I mean the the name of her chapter is early and late Meyerowitz, which is like, I think very, very clearly drawing a a line between her and her grandmother. Which which I want to come back to that before we blow by it. Uh, You you talked about how Danny has pulled away from Howard in terms of his relationship with his daughter. He's also very much pulled away from him in his relationship to his art. You know, we keep coming back to the fact that he he had a musical talent and he just, he chose not to pursue it. Mm. And it kind of seems that he's seen what obsessed devotion to art like turns you into as a person he has made the conscious choice to just like whatever talent he had just kind of let it go well and he also had crippling stage fright which is revealed late in the film and also problems with drugs 
um, which is revealed early in the film. So I think like it's not just a complete rejection of his father. I think I think the stage fright thing is really interesting when he talks about it being like walking on broken glass to get a milkshake, and then he evokes that exact image when he's like trying and failing to make a speech at the Bard show, and I think it underscores that he has some some serious performance anxiety, uh, so, so to speak, that probably torpedoed his his musical ambitions that Harold neglected to help him work through. Eliza and, you know, circling back to Jean a little bit, we, we should talk, probably talk about the female characters in both these films and how uh, they're served by the films. Yeah, I want to talk about Emma Thompson's character, oh, yes, that too. who um, <laughs> is quite fun and has one of my favorite lines uh, in the film, which I think we all know what mm-hmm. it's going to be, but I am looking it up so I can <laughs> get it right. Yes, he's baby-faced and sinewy, like an old lover of mine, Willem Dafoe. <laughs> um, but there's also a, a, like a sadness to that character who is, you know, an, an alcoholic and presented from the jump as, as an alcoholic. And that kind of made me think of the way that uh, Mrs. Robinson is portrayed with her alcoholism. But that is not the only defining characteristic of these two female characters. So maybe we should talk about something else in regards to them first. Well, definitely before we move on from Emma Thompson, I just, I just, I, what a weird and distinctive choice that she constantly refers to Harold as the, the dad. dad. Yes. Like it just, I don't know. It, it's the kind of thing that I would expect from somebody who became a stepmom while the kids were still young and didn't want to refer to him as by his first name around them mm-hmm. or as your father or whatever. It's just it's such an idiosyncratic choice. And I'm, I'm not sure where it, where it came from, but it, it kind of made me laugh. Well, the I think more it, it happened. it's just like underscores her disconnect from the broader family. Mm-hmm. You know, like how connected he, she, could she be? The, like the wife. Fourth. Number four right? or three. The first one or was three, an old. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but he tries to be encouraging. I like this is very handsome shellfish. Maureen is another favorite line. <laughs> it's the kind of term also that, that if you are one of the kids hearing your father referred to it as the dad by this, by this new woman in his life is going to be, I think infuriating, although they seem to tolerate her up to a point. Well, you know, until she kind of cuts them off from access, which I I think Emma Thompson's character is pretty underdeveloped, which is a weird thing to say about a character who's made up out of so many weird little specific details. I don't have the greatest sense for why she told the doctor that she should not under any circumstances talk to the kids. I don't have the greatest sense for what she felt about Harold. I get the sense that I know what she feels about the work, as he's constantly putting it. To some degree, I wonder if her referring to him as the dad is making fun of how often he says the work. (laughs) But they both seem to kind of like live in their own little spheres and have their own little lives. And I almost feel like if we if we pulled out and shifted focus and then zoomed back in, we would find a movie like with this level of complexity going on around her Mm -hmm. and that she's just over somewhere else having it. Yeah, I mean, the the film makes those choices in terms of perspective, in terms of what stories to emphasize and what stories not to emphasize, uh, hence, the, hence the title and hence like things like Gene's story being in parentheses. But um, I was curious. I was curious about that sp- decision that Maureen makes about not giving the kids access to information. I guess it's maybe some sort of assertion of herself in the hierarchy mm-hmm. uh, in terms of importance to to him and centrality to his life for her to uh, be able to possess this information and control you know when the kids are so much grappling for that kind of power 
Yeah, I mean, and she backs off of it very easily. You know, like they, she, they don't have to do much to convince her to let them into the circle. It feels to me like a an expression of anger or impotence or, you know, whatever icky feelings are at work in life moments like this, you know. And there is like an element of vindictiveness, like not really directed at anyone in particular, you know, you know like just like kind of anger at the world that I think is maybe informing that decision. I don't know. I, I think you have to read a bunch into it to get there. I think oh, sure. it could just as easily be something she said while drunk. <laughs> I, yeah. I think it could just as easily be something that she she just seems she seems very woolly headed a lot of the time. Like mm-hmm. I don't think it was a conscious decision to leave the shark meat raw. <laughs> I think it's something that she could have said relatively casually. I think it's something she could have said to protect them. There are all sorts of readings that you could give it. I don't think the movie gives us the data to figure out what it is, mm-hmm. but I don't. Think think it's it's played as an interesting mystery either well yeah and it's it goes back to what scott said is i think it's a matter of perspective and who we're viewing the story through and we're viewing it through the kids who don't really know her or care about her that much like she is as much of an afterthought in their lives as she is in this movie which is not a complete afterthought you know like she's there but she's not their primary focus until she does something to make her their primary focus which there is another possible motivation you could apply onto that character that is actually really fair and a a super interesting thought for me the problem then becomes even if if they don't care why she's doing it and she's just a barrier then it needs to stay a barrier for Mm. more than the the two minutes of arbitrary you can't do this okay you can like i I think that 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 idea of we don't get to find out why she did it because they don't care why she did it is actually really cool but then in that case she knuckles under too easily well she drinks a lot (laughs) (laughs) which uh, she has in common with mrs robinson i mean to me the graduates female characters kind of have the same problem of being being more barriers to what ben wants like what ben wants is purpose and mrs robinson gives him one by getting in the way of his development and then he decides he wants elaine and she's a barrier to him by (laughs) not liking him because he's a horrible person yeah I guess, again, I would counter that by saying that, uh, as a matter of perspective, The Graduate is wholly Ben's story, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so but and so if you think about it like that, there's, a, there's I think, more of an independent life and more of a, I think, a richness to that, that, that character that is unexpected and at least a little bit independent of him, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I say that, like, looking at it from a plot structure mm-hmm. point of view, but I, like, as I said uh, uh, in the first half of this conversation, I have a lot of sympathy for the mrs robinson character i love the acting role i love the way it's written i like i'm I'm fond of that character i have the most in fact she is she is the character i feel the most in that film well we could we could be here all night talking about the graduate and meyerwood stories connections between the two uh certainly we're looking forward to hearing your thoughts on both films and stuff we didn't get to the graduate is available for rent through various streaming services it can currently be seen on filmstruck netflix and tribeca shortlist it's also available on blu-ray via the criterion collection and i can recommend that desk it's packed with good stuff with mo- most or if not all of it is also in the filmstruck mm-hmm. uh version of the film the meyerwitz story is played at a few theaters but its primary outlet is netflix where it can still be streamed we'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment your next picture show Thank you. 
finally, it's time to catch each other up on the films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha, what in the film world has been good for you lately? You know, I saw a lot of films at Fantastic Fest and at TIFF uh, that were good that I want to recommend, but they're not coming up for a bit. So uh, I'm rather rather than a big recommendation for something that people aren't going to be able to see for quite a while, I'm going to give you a little recommendation for something you can see right now. Uh, and that is a movie I saw at Fantastic Fest called Wheelman, which is currently on Netflix. Uh, it is a – Frank Grillo stars in this movie and also produced it. Basically, if you saw Drive and wanted a movie that was like the first five minutes of Drive, and that was the feature. Or if you saw Cosmopolis and were angry that there weren't more gangsters uh, as a guy who's spending the entire movie driving around in a car talking to people, this is the movie for you. It is much like Brawl in Cell Block 99, which Scott and I both recommended a couple of episodes ago. It's just, it's a very stripped down action movie. There's not necessarily a whole lot of, of nuance to it. It's all uh, propulsiveness, but it, it has a certain amount of thoughtfulness to it. And it has a, a really pretty dynamic and interesting central character who is yet another of these unnamed drivers. He, he goes by Wheelman, much like the lead character in Drive, much like Baby Driver. Uh, recently. I feel like we're getting a lot of men who identify themselves by being drivers for uh, criminals lately. But uh, he is very, very quickly uh, in the film betrayed by the people that he's supposed to be driving for. And everything kind of falls out from there in a way that would be a shame to spoil. It's on Netflix. And mostly, I guess what I want to say about it is that it's just uh, visually, it's a a very dark and, and kind of beautifully intense movie. But narratively, it's just one of those films that kind of hits hits 60 uh, very early on and doesn't slow down. It's not a, a big film. It's not necessarily going to sit with you and live with you. You're, you're not necessarily going to say, you know, I didn't like this uh, Blade Runner sequel. But the more I think about it, the more I want to see it again and again <laughs> and debate it with people. <laughs> this is much more of a, a popcorn thriller kind of movie. Uh, but it was really enjoyable. And Frank Grillo is, is really great in it. That is one of the big things people are coming away from it with. Uh, so Wheelman, currently on Netflix. Genevieve, how about you? Well, I want to recommend what I was going to recommend on our last episode. I thought we might end up doing an episode on it, but it turns out I don't think we're going to be able to do that, sadly, because it is one of my favorite movies of the year. I am talking about The Florida Project, which is the latest from Sean Baker, the director of Tangerine, a movie I think we all really loved. Um, The Florida Project is set at a $35 a night purple painted motel in Kissimmee, Florida, called the Magic Castle, which is just up the road from Disney World, and a decidedly much less magical place. Um, The film follows a young girl named Mooney, who lives at the Magic Castle with her young, unemployed mother, Hallie, and basically runs wild with a group of other similarly unsupervised kids getting into mischief and exploring their garish surroundings, which Baker renders with such clarity and purpose they take on an unmistakable beauty. Through Mooney's hijinks, primarily, we slowly get a sense of the lives of the adults populating the Magic Castle, and in particular, her mother and the motel manager, played by Willem Dafoe. He's really great in this. Through what is essentially a series of vignettes, a narrative begins to emerge that paints a fairly unsettling but deeply humanistic picture of the toll extreme poverty takes on parents and their children, and how inadequate the system's put in place to help them really are. 
This is a really extraordinary film on pretty much every level, from the story to the visuals and especially the performances, especially the duo of young Brooklyn Prince, who plays Mooney, and Bria Vinate, I'm probably butchering that name, I'm sorry, uh, who plays Mooney's mother. Both of them are first-time actors who just exude charisma and give dimension to these characters who could come off as garish as their surroundings, but they don't. This is a movie that's just bursting with life and all its complicated and messy and ugly and beautiful glory, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, It's in limited release right now. It's expanding to more and more theaters by the week, and you should definitely make a point to see it on the big screen, if at all possible, because it's really quite lovely to look at in addition to all its other virtues. The Florida Project... I'm excited. I can't believe I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> I cannot uh, second that enough. That's a great movie. One of my favorites of the year, too. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry we're not talking about it at length, but maybe some sort of year-end catch-up show or something. Who knows? I have a couple quick recommendations. One thing we didn't talk about with Meyerowitz's story is music, which was uh, written by a young up-and-comer named Randy Newman. Uh, I had a chance to see Newman in concert recently. If you get this chance, um, especially if it's solo with piano, take that chance. He's fantastic. Just a terrific performer. The catalog is so deep. It's so wonderful to see them, them realized in person. Uh, it's sort of film tangential. Uh, the other one is Graduate Adjacent, which is a film called The Heartbreak Kid, mm. uh, remade years later, starring uh, one, one Ben Stiller. This is the original version, and it's kind of a tough film to track down right now. It's it's a film that was big in its time and kind of fallen into the cracks since, of, in part because it's, it's so hard to see. It's, it's not streaming anywhere. It's out of print on DVD. But hmm. um, if you if you can track it down, do it is directed by Elaine May, who is Mike Nichols' former comedy partner and 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 later uh, writing collaborator. That they, they got the band back together late uh, later in Nichols' career. It is close in some ways to The Graduate. It came out in 1972. It stars Charles Grodin as a young man who enters into a marriage he immediately regrets to a woman played by Jeannie Berlin, who is uh, May's real-life daughter. And he discovers a blonde Midwesterner played by Sybil Shepard, who's like his, who, who he begins to idealize as his dream girl and pursues her. It has a lot of the same awkward humor as a graduate. It also has a lot of the same sort of like underlying uh, sense of these people going after what they think they want and, and not realizing that it probably won't make them happier than they were, were before. Um, Grodin's amazing. Jeannie Berlin's amazing. Sybil Shepard is, is the embodiment of what someone would fantasize a, a, a Midwestern dream girl would be like. And it's got other great members of the cast, include Eddie Albert and, and Doris Roberts. And it, it goes deep. It's very funny. Um, I hope people, more people can see it than can currently see it soon. I love that movie. It's so brutal. Yeah, it's darker than The Graduate. No, no I love it. I want a pairing of that and Albert Brooks's Modern Romance. Those are the two mm, like, yeah. beacons of just absolutely brutally dark black comedies about about love. Um, I love The Heartbreak Kid. Scott, how about you? Okay, uh, one of the things I do as a freelancer is I write lists uh, for <laughs> for watching, which is the uh, New York Times recommendation site. And with Kirk Douglas turning 101 in a month, uh, I was asked to write up a pre-recommendation obituary. I mean, he will eventually pass, I'm afraid, Um, (laughs) on on him. And so I picked about 13 films from his filmography, many of which I'd seen, uh, like Paths of Glory and Ace in the Hole, and some of which I hadn't, like the great boxing noir champion and a jazz drama called Young Man with a Horn. But of the ones I hadn't seen... The film that stood out most for me is a film called Lonely Are the Brave, a 1962 Western written by Dalton Trumbo, uh, perhaps the most famous of the blacklisted screenwriters. 
Douglas helped end the blacklist by advocating for a credit for Trumbo on the screenplay for Spartacus, and Trumbo returns the favor here by writing one of the few left-wing westerns, a genre that's better known for its conservatism. Shot in black and white, uh, the film begins in what we assume is the Old West, with uh, Douglas's cowboy mounting a, a horse with his uh, hat on, his big 10-gallon hat, uh, and galloping along the plain. Uh, but then soon he is directing that horse through traffic, <laughs> and we realize um, that uh, it's set in the present day. And uh, the film is about him attempting to get himself locked up in jail deliberately in order to break out a friend who's been put in there as punishment for trying to bring undocumented people across the border or help undocumented people who have crossed the border. Um, so there's some really strong resonance there. And another cell block, <laughs> and a, another brawl on cell block 99 premise, isn't it? Now that I think about it of, of deliberately landing yourself in jail in order to, uh, in order to do, uh, accomplish submission. But in any case, the film is called uh, lonely, the brave. It's pretty widely available and it's very striking. It's kind of anticipatory of a lot of the revisionist Westerns that would, show up maybe seven or eight years uh, down the line. So uh, check it out. Kirk Douglas, Only the Brave. And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes will come out November 14th and November 16th. Scott, what are we discussing? You know, one of my favorite films at the Toronto Film Festival this year was Greta Gerwig's directorial debut, Lady Bird, a semi-autobiographical comedy starring Shirsha Ronan as a graduating senior from Sacramento, California, who's negotiating the next step in her life. It's hard to describe the plot because it's more about a young woman trying to figure things out, including her fraught relationship with her mother, played by Laurie Metcalf, her courtship by a pair of very different guys, and her feeling about Sacramento itself, from which she wants to get it as far away as possible. Lady Bird is set in 2002, in 2003, and it seems likely that Ronan's character, creative and rebellious as she is, would have found a lot to like about Terry Zweigoff's Ghost World. Like Ronan in Lady Bird, Thora Birch's Enid in Ghost World has just graduated from high school, and she's feeling ambivalent about entering young adulthood. This creates a rift between her and her best friend, played by Scarlett Johansson. Based on Daniel Clow's graphic novel, Ghost World has become a cult favorite and generational touchstone, and it seems to us that Lady Bird might have a similar fate. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of The Graduate, The Meyerowitz Stories, and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's podcast, where can we find everyone these days? Tasha? Hi, you can find me writing about films and television and editing other people about films and television at TheVerge.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson, and you can find me writing about books occasionally at NPRBooks.com. Genevieve? You can find me at the culture section at Vox.com and on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Scott? Uh, yes, you can find me at Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias, and you can find my work in... You know, the watching section of the New York Times, uh, Washington Post, NPR, uh, Vulture. I've got a pretty big uh, link ladder list up there now. And a variety and other fine publications. I'm also the editor-in-chief of the Oscilloscope Musings blog. And we've posted some things on there recently that I'm super proud of. So check that out. Uh, Keith Phipps? You can find me at uprocks.com where I'm editorial director of film and television. And, and when, I, when I can, I write. And you can find me on Twitter at kphipps3000. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting us at nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. 
Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Colin the Animal Griffith for his assistance producing the show, and thanks to Genevieve Kosky for hosting at her home studio. The Next Picture Show is proud to be a part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. You'll always be good at math. You'll always be good at naming stars. so sad there when you shot at the Olympiad but that black and white cookie made it not so bad